Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And we are going to come this morning to our final look at this incredible scene in the final days of the ministry and of the life of Jesus during his time here on earth. The final days that are leading up to his crucifixion, to his being killed and murdered by his own people and by the Roman government. We will be focusing this morning on verses 7 through 11. Now, by way of introduction, I would remind you of the words of the Apostle John in the Gospel of John in his opening statements in his prologue in verses 10 through 11. He says this, and these are really some of the saddest words in all of Scripture. He says, He, speaking of Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. The Creator of the world then was rejected by the world. The King and Redeemer of Israel was scorned and rejected by Israel. And this is tragic. But it is not unanticipated, nor is it unplanned in the purposes of God. And throughout our look, not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but particularly in this portion of Scripture and recording this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, we have been noting the prophetic fulfillment of every detail of the life and of the ministry of Jesus, and particularly these events that are unfolding before our eyes. Jesus was not the victim of circumstances. He was the sovereign Lord of the universe and redeemer of his people, accomplishing God's sovereign plan at this point in history. Sadly, most of them missed it. And because they misunderstood God's prophetic word. And they misunderstood God's prophetic word largely because they misunderstood the depth of their sin. Therefore... They did not want the kind of Savior that they, in fact, needed. Nonetheless, Christ has come in fulfillment of the promises of God and fulfillment of the prophets, and He's going to enter into Jerusalem amid the praises of His people. Again, only to be finally rejected. He is the right kind of king. He is the one they should have been anticipating, but it is the wrong kind of praise that welcomes Him. Wrong perceptions of Jesus can produce much loud but empty praise. We see that not only in the text before us, but we see it around us even today. Let's consider this a little bit more closely than in the next few moments. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll swing back around to verses 6 and 7. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. 
And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Look back up at verses 6 and 7. And let's note here in the second half of this account, prophetic misapprehension. In other words, the wrong kind of praise. Now in verses 6 through 7 then, the disciples fulfilled the instructions that Jesus had given them to go and to find a donkey and her colt that he might ride on them as he enters into Jerusalem according to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. And we would not want to pass over their immediate obedience as they are following the instructions of their Lord. And so they go and they find the animals just as Jesus had said. And they bring them to him in preparation for his entrance into Jerusalem. And by Jesus' own intentional planning as a prophetic statement to his people, Zechariah 9 and the prophecy of his entrance is being fulfilled. And now the prophetic scene is said. Once they bring the animals to Jesus, they lay their garments on them. The garments here are probably those of the two disciples who went to fetch the animals, not all 12 of the disciples. And they're acting here as a sort of a saddle for Jesus to sit on. Now Mark 11 and Luke 19 mention only the colt, but Matthew notes the garments are placed on both animals. The reason for this is because Matthew alone accounts for both of the animals that Jesus instructed them to receive. And it could also be that they were going to switch animals along the way or give Jesus which option on which to ride on. In either case, they put their garments on the animals. He gets on the colt, as Zechariah anticipated, and they enter into Jerusalem. Now John chapter 12, verse 16, tells us that the disciples were largely ignorant of these events. As a matter of fact, John says these words, I'll read it to you. These things his disciples did not understand at first, at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, they did not grasp all of the imagery that was going on. They understood it afterwards, and that is what is recorded for us in Scripture, their later understanding by the Spirit of God, but they were largely ignorant as they were through much of the ministry of Jesus of many of the things that he did and their significance when they were happening. However, Jesus had been consistently teaching his disciples about their relation to the kingdom and his own relation to the messianic kingdom that was coming. Peter had already received a revelation from the Father in which he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then unfolded for him his unique role in Jesus building his kingdom on earth. In chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus had told them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And clearly this kingdom thinking, this kingdom reality was at the forefront of their minds. And that is the very thing that led to them putting their mother up and themselves coming to Jesus to try to seek preferential treatment in this coming kingdom of God. And they had certainly heard the blind man shout out the messianic title to Jesus, calling him the son of David. In other words, the kingdom was on the forefront of their mind. And although they didn't totally get everything that was going on, the gesture of putting their garments on the donkey would seem to imply more than simply the comfort of Jesus for this short ride into Jerusalem. It would seem to be that they understood there was something dramatically significant about this entrance into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And in fact, this is going to be dramatically unfolded in the very next verse, in verse 8. And he tells us, Matthew does, that most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. So that implicit act of the disciples is now explicit in the actions of the crowds who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as king. And this is a dramatic scene. Let's note then first the identification of the crowds. The identification of the crowds. And let's note first the size of the crowds. Uh, The NASB, the New American Standard, and actually the English Standard Version also say that most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. Most of the crowd. It is more literally, I don't quite understand why they translated it that way, it is more literally very large crowds. Very large crowds is the language that is used. And this is perhaps, in fact, the largest singular gathering of people in the life and the ministry of Jesus up to this point. And there's a couple of factors that are converging at once. First, as has already been noted, this is the time of the year of the Passover. So it's when Jews from around the land of Palestine and the land of Judah were converging all at once to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate both the Feast of Booze and the Passover at the end of the week. And the second factor is that Jesus' popularity is at its peak. It's reached a climax. Everything that he's been doing and as the word of him has spread and as he has magnified his ministry throughout the land of Galilee and through the land of Palestine, word has gotten out and now there is a fever pitch about this rabbi who is healing powers. Now it's hard to know exactly how many people were present, but we do have some clues Josephus, that ancient Jewish historian from which we really get much of our information about uh, these times, noted that in the year of 66 through 70 AD, somewhere in that time period, that there were, at the time of Passover, over 2 million, actually 2,700,000 Jews that were in the land of Jerusalem for the celebration of that great high feast among the people of the Jews. Now, the accuracy of that number may not be precisely correct, but it is indicative of an immensely large crowd. Other conservative estimates put the number around 250,000 to about 1 million people. In either case, it is an exceptionally large number of people in that area. And the minimum, the minimum numbers would make it hundreds of thousands, but it was closely, likely, more likely closer to a million. 
So this is a very large crowd. These are masses of people. And why all of that number aren't around Jesus, some are in the city, which we'll note in a moment. There is an overwhelming amount of people that are surrounding the Lord Jesus. Let's note secondly, then the makeup of the crowd. John chapter 12 identifies at least four groups who are among this crowd. He says in John 12, 12, that the large crowd who had come to the feast and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So he's there identifying the large masses of people that were already in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and many of whom who had no doubt witnessed his miracles heard his teaching ministry. He then says in verse 17 of John 12 that there were people who were with him when he raised Lazarus out of the tomb. Now you'll remember in John chapter 11, John uh, prefaces the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem with the great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so many of those people who were still excited and overwhelmed at what they had witnessed were also among this group of people that were surrounding him. In verse 18, John identifies the people that went out and met him. So not only were there the people that were surrounding Jesus and that were already following him, but there were those who were already in Jerusalem who heard that he was coming, and then they were also streaming out of the city. So they were essentially coming from many directions to go and meet up where he was. There is actually a fourth group mentioned in John also. He says in verse 20, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship also at the feast who approached Jesus. These would be most likely God-fearing Gentiles, maybe proselytes, maybe not. But they are those who were going there to attend this Jewish feast and to celebrate with them the Passover meal. Now we learn also from Luke that there were some Pharisees among the crowd. Clearly, we'll meet them later, clearly they were not uh, participating in the celebration and all of the adulation that was surrounding Jesus, but they were there and they were present. So this is a mixed crowd. Those who were just caught up in the fervor, those who had witnessed his miracles, those who were not even Jews, and those who were the Pharisees who were a constant presence in the ministry of Jesus. Now let's note next then the expectation of the crowds, also in verse 8 of Matthew 21. What are they doing here? He says they spread their garments on the way, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the way. Again, an incredible, incredible scene. John 12, again, informs us of what kind of trees these were. He says they were palm trees, and that would be common It would be abundant. Those palm trees were abundant in the area. There would have been plentiful for them. And so they were grabbing branches from these palm trees. They were cutting them down. And essentially, they were laying them on the road in front of Jesus. And it acted much like a carpet for him to travel on. It would not be unlike our rolling out the red carpet for a dignity or a star. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, it's a picture of the coronation of a king as well as the joyful celebration of a conqueror. It was the occasional custom of the people to go through these motions when they were coronating a king of their people. The most uh, likely reference here is in 2 Kings chapter 9. Let me just read it to you. 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 13. When Jehu was going to be crowned king of Israel... 
This is recorded for us that the people then hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king, Jehu is king. In other words, it was an act that was acknowledging him as being ruler over the people. But it wasn't only coronation. It was also the welcome of one victorious in battle. Interestingly, about 170 years earlier, so about 141 B.C., this would be after the Maccabean Revolt where God raised up those who were faithful among His people to reestablish the pure worship of the nation of Israel. One of those men in 141 B.C. was Simon the high priest. And he is noted in the book of 1 Maccabees as purifying the city of its uncleanliness. He had recently won a battle for the independence of Judea. And when he was returning to the city, he was welcomed in these words with thanksgiving, branches of palm trees and with harps and with cymbals and hymns and songs because there was destroyed an enemy out of Israel. In other words, they went through the same motions to welcome one who was a victorious king. And, interestingly, this same language is going to be used in the book of Revelation. Listen to what takes place in the throne room of God before the Lamb... Before, as he is enacting his judgment before his return to the earth. It says, After these things, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and the peoples and the tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, this is an act in the minds of the people of recognizing that Jesus is king. A ruler is entering into the land of Jerusalem. But not only a ruler, they are in their minds, they are bearing witness to the fact that they are welcoming one they expect to be a victorious ruler, a triumphant ruler, thus it is often called the triumphal entry. It was a symbolic gesture recognizing the kingship of Jesus And even more, a joyful celebration of his coming triumph as Israel's king. This is the one you will remember that they witnessed raise the dead, heal the lame, give sight to the blind, who taught with authority. This is the one that they had been witnessing the power of God in repeatedly. And here he is, come to Jerusalem at the time of the great feast. And the very feast itself was a remembrance for the people of God's great deliverance of them from the land of Egypt. And here they were expecting the same in the person of Jesus. And so as he approaches the city, he does so amid great celebration and rejoicing. They were expecting nothing less than the display of messianic kingdom glory. At least in a militaristic sense and in a political sense. And really, in fact, this is no different than what Jesus had already experienced in his ministry. If you'll remember in John chapter 6, after he fed the thousands, that he records for us in verse 15, that they wanted to come and to make him king because they recognized him as a unique prophet of God who had entered into the world. Verse 15 of John 6 says that Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. 
The point is, is that the fever, the messianic expectations was at a fever pitch among the people. They were ready at the drop of a hat, essentially, to take Jesus, this incredible servant and prophet of God, and to lift him up to a place of prominence. In John chapter 6, he went off and he hid himself because the time wasn't right for that to take place. Now, the minds and the hearts of the people was no different, really, than it was in John 6, but now Jesus is going to enter in and accept that praise because the time for his for him to fulfill his purpose had come. And so here they are welcoming him into Jerusalem as king and as Messiah. And as we noted last time that he is interestingly coming on a donkey primarily as the sign of peace. It was a sign of peace. He's not coming as a conqueror on a horse, but he's coming as a king on a donkey announcing peace. But they welcome him not as one in peace, but one who is going to be a conqueror. They expect the glory of Jerusalem to be established on the earth very soon. The yoke of Rome to be thrown off and Israel once again established as the preeminent nation among the earth. That is the expectation of the crowd. Let's note next their exuberance. Look at the beginning of verse 9. It says the crowds were going before him and they were, some were following him. So again, Jesus is literally engulfed in a mass of people in front of him and behind him. And they are moving with him slowly at the pace of a young colt with an adult riding on them for nearly over a mile into the land of Jerusalem. So this is a sustained scene. And the picture is of them flocking to him in almost uncontrollable excitement. And no doubt the excitement and the intensity of the scene is increased by the sheer numbers and the sheer energy that takes place in these kind of crowds. It is somewhat of a crowd mentality. The emotion and the fervor that was already high is only feeding on itself and continuing to increase as he is getting nearer and nearer to the city of Jerusalem. It is an exuberant crowd. Note next, the exclamation of the crowd. The second part of verse 9. They were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this pronouncement by the people is really the apex of the scene. It is an unabashed expression of the mind of the people and what they were expecting out of Jesus. They are acknowledging him as the hope and the king of Israel, as the expected one who ushers in this final rule of God, who establishes his kingdom once and for all. These are incredible words that they're applying to Jesus. Hosanna is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term, which could be translated, among other things, but essentially, help I pray or save I pray. It is debated whether it is a prayer or a declaration. In either case, they are looking to Jesus to be their Savior. And it is, in either case, a cry for deliverance and salvation. It's not salvation from sin, however, that they want, but from oppressors. It is a plea for freedom from bondage. And this Hosanna is taken from the Hebrew of Psalm 125, in which the people cry out, O Lord, do save us, we beseech thee. And then look what they call him. 
Hosanna to the son of David. And this is not a direct quote from somewhere in the Old Testament. This is what they are putting together. The idea of Hosanna, God, a Savior, and here, son of David. And again, this is unmistakably messianic. Clearly, they are acknowledging him as their Messiah. They are clearly connecting him to the promise of David in 2 Samuel 7, which we've already looked at. In other words, saying this is the one, the promised son of David, whose throne will be established forever, whose kingdom will be established forever. This is what they are expecting. As a matter of fact, Mark 11.10 tells us that they added these words also. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is the time. This is the place. This is when God is going to establish his long ago promised kingdom. The king is here and he's being welcomed as such. A ruler and a conqueror of the people of God. And he comes, they say, in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, representing all of God's purposes, all of God's glory, all of God's intentions for this time and for this place. Now the phrase is taken verbatim from Psalm 118, verse 26. And in Psalm 118 is the last of what are known as the, as the Hallel songs taken from Hallelujah. They actually go from 113, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And they are a celebration of God. And Psalm 118 particularly is a celebration of God's deliverance of His people. Using specifically the imagery of the Exodus. God's deliverance of His people from bondage. It is a reminder of God's faithful covenant love to His people and that He acts on their behalf. And that really consumes the first 21 verses of the psalm. But the last verses of Psalm 118, verses 22 through 29, are future in their outlook. And while they didn't necessarily at the time understand this as messianic, it was a future look towards God's deliverance of His people. And they clearly give it a messianic application here in their praises to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to do the same. And in his confrontation at the end of a parable with the Jews, he's also going to quote some from previous verses in Psalm 118 when he says, uh, excuse me, that the, build, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner stone. And it was marvelous in his sight. Clearly, these are words that are anticipating God's purposes in the Messiah. And at some level, they are recognizing them as such. And they understood that at some level, that was the Davidic king in Psalm 118 that was being identified. The one who was going to come in the name of the Lord to bring deliverance to his people. And they end with Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Glorifying God, again, who is represented here in Christ. And in other words, they're saying this. They're saying glory to God in the highest who is fulfilling His saving and gracious purposes toward Israel in Christ. Luke 19.38 adds that they said, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And I want you to note something here. And just tuck this away in your mind for now. That the content of their praise is accurate. 
The content of their praise is accurate. They are speaking the truth. And furthermore, not only are they speaking the truth, but they are speaking the truth in sincerity. They are not being intentionally hypocritical here. They fully believe what they're shouting. They absolutely are convinced of the words that they're saying. They are not being intentionally hypocritical at this point. Hold on to that. Now this was not simply then the adulation of an exalted teacher, but this was the one who was being acknowledged as the unique bearer of God's revelation and accomplisher of his purposes. And the Pharisees got this. They got it. And they were absolutely incensed and offended. Offended. They hated him, which has already been evident, and that hatred is only increasing. And John eleven fifty three has already told us that the plot to put him to death and to get him off of the scene has already been enacted in the minds of the Pharisees. They're simply waiting for an opportunity which would come later, interestingly, by one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, who volunteered to hand him over. Now Luke 19 39 through 40 says this, that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, while all of this is going on, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these become become silent, the stones will cry out. In other words, God has determined this moment and God has determined this praise. It is right. It must take place. And nothing can silence the exaltation of his name. If all the people were to be silenced, Jesus said, then the plentiful rocks in that region would all join in the chorus and sing their own praise to him and repeat the same words. And there is a way in which this is a rebuke to the leaders, saying, look, leaders of Israel, even the lifeless stones have more awareness of what's going on than you. Even the stones, if these people were to remain silent, would have more insight into what's going on than you who are dead and blind. And the fact is that the Pharisees were both afraid of Jesus and they were envious of him at the same time. They were essentially, in many ways, frightened and terrified of him. They were frightened for the common reason already given again in John chapter 11 that they were afraid that the Romans were going to come and take their nation that's exactly what they said and so now that they see this messianic fervor and these masses of crowds and they're acknowledging Jesus as king they are frightened out of their boots they're thinking in one sense what's going to happen are the Romans going to see all this and come and wipe out our nation and so they were afraid of the entire scene Herod, if you'll remember, at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, went out and tried to kill just at the thought that the king had been born and ended up murdering infants out of fear that this king might arise and overtake his throne. That same attitude they knew would be in the hearts of the Romans. They were also jealous because he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their power. As a matter of fact, again, in John chapter 12, he records for us the words as they're witnessing this scene unfold before them. He says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Your attempts to silence him have been futile. They were beside themselves. 
And even Pilate recognized their hostility. And in Matthew 27, 18, he said he knew, or Matthew records that Pilate knew that the Jews had delivered him up because of envy. They were jealous. Their power was being destroyed. Their reputation debased. Their hypocrisy exposed. And so here the Messiah enters into Jerusalem. The final week of his ministry and to complete the very purpose for his coming. He came as king. He came as deliverer. He came for his people in fulfillment of the prophets. He came announced by John the Baptist. He came confirmed by his life and by his words and by his works. And now he comes amid the praises of his people, those he came to save. He comes hailed as the promised son of David and a deliverer in the name of the Lord. He comes as God's man to do God's work. And this could appear at first glance then in some way to be the fruition or the reward of his resisting the temptation of Satan. Do you remember in Matthew 4, 4? Satan said, all of these kingdoms I will give to you. I'll give them all to you. And Jesus rejected that. He would not transfer his worship from the Father. And it would appear here that now he has received the nations and that his time has come and his kingdom would be established and he would be the king of a kingdom that is the glory of all of the earth. And you could read this scene and imagine as a casual reader that his heart at this point would be filled with joy, with hope, with thanksgiving, with honor at the words and the actions of the people as they welcomed him into the city of God as their king. But was it? How did he feel? What was he thinking? What was going through the mind of our Lord as these events were taking place? What did he do? What would you expect him to be thinking? Luke tells us in Luke 19.41... And it is here, beloved, that the reality of the scene comes into its most sharp and clear focus. What did he do as he approached? Luke 19 tells us that when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept. He was not filled with joy. He was not filled with hope, but with a deep sense of grief and sadness. Why? Because he knew the emptiness of their heart and he knew the end of it all. He knew where this was going. And there is probably no more striking picture in the ministry of Jesus of how blind the people were to their God than the fact that in the very midst of their praises, he is crying and he's weeping for them. The contrast between the hopes and the truth of his person and work and their expectations could not be greater. They shout for his salvation and he weeps over their destruction. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us in these words in Luke 19, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. 
They say the right words, but they were not recognizing the right king. Luke is here referring to the destruction of Jerusalem by then General Titus in 70 AD at the end of the Jewish revolt, the Jewish uprising against Caesar. This was an event of such destruction. It was matched only by the destruction of the first temple in 586 BC under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in the exile of Judah when he finally removed them from the land. It is suffering and destruction that is chronicled for us in detail in the book of Lamentations about that first destruction of the temple. And here Jesus is saying, it's coming again. It's coming again because of your sin. This was anticipated. This was anticipated. And Jesus exactly describes the events that are going to take place. Titus did surround Jerusalem. He cut off food supplies from the people. And a horrible famine ensued that led even to cannibalism. And Josephus records for us even such events of a woman killing her young son that she might roast him in the fire and eat him. Jesus sees this. He knows this. Titus later went in and systematically killed all the people and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. And before that happened, he crucified hundreds and hundreds as they would try to escape. He would take them and crucify them outside the cities and basically let his soldiers have their fun with them and even doing all kinds of unspeakable tortures to them as a reminder to them of their foolishness in rebellion. Jesus knows this is coming. He knows this is coming. And even though they say at this time in ignorance... He also knows that a time will come when they will say it in truth. He says in this, in verse Matthew 23, 39, after he excoriates the leaders for their hypocrisy, he says, For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You say it now in ignorance, and a day is coming when you will say it in truth. When every knee will bow before the exalted Christ. When every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But his first coronation was not to be crowned, but it was to be crucified. From this, Matthew tells us in verse 10, When he had entered into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred or shaken. That is to say, a buzz with the excited murmuring, the anticipation, and the fear of everything that was going to take place. They simply didn't know what to expect, but they knew that whatever was going to happen was going to be big, it was going to be monumental. And so Matthew ends his account in verse 11 on a note of their ignorance. With all the praise and messianic fervor and expectation, they still did not have a firm hold of his person. And so when they asked that all-important question that all men must ask, who is this? Matthew simply records for us that the answer came as this. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. A prophet. A messianic prophet at that. But not the Son of God. Not the suffering servant not the Savior from sin. Now as the week unfolds, the discrepancy between the king they want and the king he is will become clearer and clearer. Instead of condemning and attacking the Romans, his first act is going to be to condemn and attack the hypocritical religious system of the Jews in verse 12, their own temple. 
Instead of establishing the glory of Israel, he's going to tell them in verse 43 of 21 that their glory is going to be taken away and given to a people or a nation producing the fruit of it, the Gentiles. Instead of exalting Jerusalem, he's going to tell them it will be destroyed. Why? Because he's not the king they wanted. He would be then the king that they rejected. And the leaders capitalized on the confusion and disillusionment of the people. So much so that many of the people who are among the crowds in this scene are going to change their cries. The crowd who was crying for his honor would soon be crying for his blood. And Hosanna to the son of David in Matthew 21 would soon turn into the cry, We have no king but Caesar in John 19. Their cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would turn to the shocking cry, crucify him, crucify him, in Matthew 27. Hosanna to the highest would soon become his blood be upon us and our children. It's dramatic, but that is the emptiness of their praise. Now what can we learn from this? I'm going to suggest there's at least three primary lessons that we should observe here. More could be added, but I think these are at the forefront. The first is this. What do we see in this? Well, we see God's incredible love for his people and for sinners. We see his incredible love for people and for sinners. This is the son of God. He did not have to go through all of this. He did not have to do it. He subjected himself to this kind of grief to this kind of suffering to this kind of rejection by his own people for us and for our salvation and even for the salvation of his own people why did he do that why did he do that because he loved them because he loved them john tells us this that before all these events were going to happen when they actually are celebrating the passover meal That before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Later, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose up and washed the feet of his disciples, laying down his life to serve them as he would do in a greater way at the cross. Look, to see Jesus subject himself to this is a demonstration, listen to this, of the heart of your God. It's the heart of your God who is doing this. Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that we are not righteous. And in fact, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is a demonstration of the mercy of God. We must own this fact that God does not owe you and he does not owe me salvation. It is an act of his grace. It is a gift. I want you to note also this under this, however, that God's sovereignty and salvation does not exclude his genuine love for sinners. It does not exclude his heart for sinners. And yet, though he exercises love for them, it does not also exclude his wrath. Remember that Jesus wept over the coming destruction of Jerusalem, but at the same time, Jesus would be the one who brings that execution against his people. It is from the wrath of God and of the Lamb that men try to hide themselves in Revelation chapter 6. Both are true. Jesus is both the bearer of judgment and the executioner of judgment on sinners. 
His love is real, beloved, but his love must never be trivialized and treated as cheap. He is the holy God who exercises love. And the same one who came to die for his people is the same one who will kill them in their rebellion for those who don't repent. It is a call then for them to receive the graciousness and the kindness of their God. Note secondly, it tells us this, that his sovereign faithfulness to his promise, that he is sovereignly faithful to his promise, despite the ignorance and the unbelief and the rebellion of his people, God is fulfilling his covenant in these events. He's fulfilling his promise in these events. His salvation and purpose of redemption are not ultimately dependent on man. Understand this, that nobody in this scene, in this entire scene, save Jesus, understands really what's going on. Not even his disciples, whom he had been revealing these things to. They didn't even understand it. And some of them are acting in outright disbelief. And yet in the midst of all of that, God is still fulfilling his purpose and keeping his promise. And that is a tremendous reminder to us that the sovereign one on the throne will be faithful to his covenant and to his promises. In spite of the rejection and the rebellion of men. Christ will be exalted above the earth. He will accomplish his purposes. God's plans are never frustrated. Let me give you a third. It shows us this. The great depths of self-deception, hardness, and hypocrisy that can dominate the fallen human heart. In the end, that refuses to acknowledge the depth of sin and take God as he is and truly love him. Man is forever shaping God into their own image and their own desires. And I want to remind you again that the people are being absolutely sincere in their praises. They are not at this point doing this with a false heart. They truly think he is this Messiah that they want. It's just they wanted the wrong Messiah. And this then This scene anticipates every apostasy that ever has taken place and will take place. And in fact, the same reason that the people ultimately rejected him is the same reason why Judas ultimately betrayed him. Because at the end of the day, he isn't what he wanted. He wasn't the kind of Christ he had bought on to follow. And ultimately... This is the reason that the great apostasy at the end of this age is going to take place. And the same reason that masses of professing Christians now will turn on the true saints of God to kill them and to put them to death. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 There is a great apostasy coming from the very ones who now are singing the praises of Jesus every Sunday morning. It was no different for them as it will be For us, they cried out for his blood after singing his praises, and so it will be in the future when the mask is removed and the true heart condition and the true loves are revealed. And then coming under the spirit of the Antichrist because they loved wickedness rather than the truth. And let's take it one step farther. That many are guilty of this same sin, worshiping a Jesus they've tailored to their own making, who never actually reject him in this earth. What was his warning in Matthew chapter 7? Do you remember? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And I will say to you, depart from me, you 
workers of iniquity, I never knew you. What in the world were these people worshiping for their entire stay on earth? What were they worshiping? Well, Jesus is going to tell them, it wasn't me. It was my name. It was among my people. And it was with the right words, but it was with an empty heart. Your praises were meaningless. Your love was a farce. Your words were empty. Beloved, do you get that there's a whole entire nation that was worshiping their Messiah, the promised one, and it was all empty? And the same is true for masses of people who are in churches. And not only the masses of people, but individuals even who visit us. The reality is it's not saying the words, it's loving Christ for who he is. And so the scene stands as an affirmation of Scripture, a testimony to God's love and sovereignty, but also a warning to all religious people. Remember, the content of their praise was correct. It was their understanding of the one they were worshiping that was the issue. And so the question then is this. What do you do when something from God's words confronts your understanding of Him? What do you do when the gospel from Scripture confronts your own desires for salvation? What do you do? Do you supplement your own wisdom or do you submit to the Word of God? The question is this, do you absolutely submit to Christ as He is revealed in the pages of Scripture? That Scripture, that God's own words, corrects and shapes your thinking about what sin is, who God is, what salvation is, what repentance looks like, and what fruit of the Spirit looks like in a life of obedient praise and faith in Christ. Do you readily acknowledge your sin in Christ and Christ alone as your only and sufficient Savior and Lord, whom you submit to. They didn't. And that can easily happen to us, too. So here is Jesus. He's entered into Jerusalem on the praises of the people. And yet, those praises would be turned into rejection. And it's only going to get heated up from this point as soon as he enters into Jerusalem for his final week which we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word, which is to us a reminder of truth. It brings us into your holy presence and reminds us that your ways will be established. It reminds us of the dangers that can infect our hearts as sinners who don't really want to deal with our sin and like to shape a, a little Jesus-shaped idol and bow down to it, but in fact, in the end, will be shown to be the wrong Jesus. I pray that you would keep us from that. And Lord, it's not difficult. You've not made this hard. It's very simple. Those who love you as you are are yours. Those who deal with their sin and trust in you alone are your people. Those who have a heart to obey you and follow you in your word, turning away from sin and walking in the way of righteousness are your people, imperfect as we may be, yet resting only in our Savior who stood in our place and rose from the dead for us. I pray if there be any mask of hypocrisy 
among us this morning that you would expose it, that you would remove it, and that you would bring them into true saving faith in you, the majestic and the holy and the gracious one. For the rest of us, may we be encouraged to walk in the truth and in faithfulness to you till that great and final day. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.